Well, if that didn't arouse our hearts to worship, right? Our great God in heaven, we are grateful that we can be here this morning and praise you together with one voice, one heart, as one people united under one sacrifice, your son Christ. And we thank you for that gift of salvation that has come to us so freely, but was filled with so much grace. We come this morning with adoration, with thanksgiving, and joy that we can be named as your own, being adopted into your family by your mercy and by your redeeming power. We thank you for this time that we can have now together under your word. And I pray, given our hearts are disposed to that word, that this will be also a time of worship of you. So would you please direct our hearts and our minds for these moments that we have together under the instruction of our God. Allow me to speak freely on these things and correctly, but please allow, Father, also that our hearts would be opened by your good hand in the hearts and lives of your people so that we grow from our time together. We're aroused in our zeal for you. We're awakened to our privilege to serve your good name and your kingdom together as believers. Thank you for these moments, then, of praise, worship, of fellowship together as those that have been chosen by you and redeemed by the blood of your Son. In Christ's name, we pray this together. Amen. Um, as you will notice in your note sheet, we're not going to be in Romans this morning, but I'd like to start out there. If you would turn to Romans chapter 1. Um, I've said that through our study of Romans from time to time, I want to continue on with our study of Psalms, and because this is kind of our Thanksgiving holiday, we're going to turn to the Psalms this morning for our study, but the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 will set a good groundwork for where we're going to go. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, down through verse 23, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. This is a passage that is somewhat sobering, but it is a testament to how our world reflects on and believes about our God, the God that we are here to worship and serve. There are a lot of traditions that I think are very interesting in our culture, especially as we approach the holidays, with, and these traditions are very often associated with animals. Uh, we're about to enter into Christmas time celebration, and reindeers with red noses seem to be a theme that is followed. We're going to follow that with springtime when a rodent's going to come out of the ground, and his shadow is apparently going to tell us if we're going to have good weather or not. And then Easter rolls around with its bunnies that apparently reproduce so much, and it's supposed to say something to us about springtime. But Thanksgiving is perhaps the most interesting to me because it is this time of year that the President of the United States is going to pardon a turkey. Um, and I'm really not sure. It's morbid if you think about it because what the President is apparently doing in this tradition is saying to that turkey, we're not going to chop your head off this year. We can't say much for all your kinfolk, but you're spared, you're pardoned. And I don't know if the turkey is supposed to respond to this, to rejoice in this, or to be thankful, but it's an odd tradition that we have. <clears throat> Among the traditions that you and I as Christians enjoy is a time of thanksgiving to the Lord. And it's based on that thankfulness in this season that I want us to turn to Psalm 138. Um, because of this weekend of thanksgiving for God's people, we're going to take that brief step away from our Roman study and look to the book of Psalms to receive, I hope, some encouragement and exhortation in the matter of expressing, and I want to emphasize these two words, grateful worship 
to the Lord God. And oftentimes when I speak on these things, I'm addressing things that I see in my own life that I'd rather not see or things that I know need to be changed. And this is one of those things that was concerning to me because oftentimes I'm grateful for, for what I get. I'm grateful for what I get. And probably some of you are like this as well. And it, that's, that's even reflected in my, my spiritual walk of faith. But I want to emphasize here the importance of grateful worship, meaning that our, thankful to the, our thankfulness to the Lord, whether it's this season or all year long, our thankfulness to the Lord is to be worshipful. In other words, we are acknowledging the worth of God, his value, the worth of his graces, his character. And this should draw our attention to our response to who God is more than just with polite words that say, thank you, God, at, at, at mealtime graces or at a Thanksgiving dinner. And this is what I believe Paul was communicating to the church when he wrote that God was clearly seen and made known to all humanity, but the world did not honor God as God. They did not reverence or honor him for who he was. They did not give thanks to him in worship. Instead, men worshiped the creature even over the creator. And as believers, saved by God's redeeming love, we need to learn to give thanks to God for who he is as much as what he does for us. This is a gratitude that honors him as God because he is God. And I think there are a few places in the Word of God that do this better, teach us this better than the book of Psalms. And this is because Psalms are filled first with rich theology. And I've said that before in our study of Psalms. It is filled, this book, with theology. At the same time, teaching us about who God is, he ministers to his people out of the depth of that character. It's a book that teaches us how God interacts with us in the everyday experiences of life. And I've said this before about Psalms. Almost every kind of emotion or experience, good and bad in life, that we can walk through is named and identified in the book of Psalms. So it brings that human experience together with theology. And again, there's no book that teaches a third aspect, that how to worship God out of our experiences because of who he is. Very often our Thanksgiving celebrations focus on God's benevolence with us and our thankfulness for the many blessings and provisions that his good hands provide us. Our Thanksgiving tradition we know traces back to the pilgrim, the settlers, who had experienced such extreme hardships and terrible losses through sickness and death. And after surviving the harshness of that first winter, they, by the circumstances that God allowed, had a spring a planting season, and a fall harvest that was bountiful. And so they gathered together, even with the Native Americans, and they proposed a feast where they celebrated together God's benevolence. And that's an appropriate thanksgiving. It's an appropriate attitude for us to have, that God provides for our needs, even our temporal needs. But an essential understanding of the church's gratitude toward the Lord God is our worship of him, And I think this is an area that in the past I have been deficient in. Because again, I thank God when he gives me something that benefits me. In our study of Romans, these early verses in chapter 1 reminds us of how the unsaved people of the world were neither thankful for God, nor did they honor him as God. And this is in spite of the fact that God's divine nature and eternal power is visible in creation. That's what we saw in Proverbs or in Psalm 19 as was read to us at the opening of the service. God, his power and nature can be seen in creation. But in addition to that, Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, God placed the knowledge of himself in the heart of all men. And it's important that believers are grateful to God. Unlike the world, grateful to God for who he is, we honor him as God. Just as important as receiving blessings from him and daily provisions and temporal needs, are we thankful for who God is, for his sovereign control, his power, his divine attributes, for the glory of his incorruptible character, as Paul wrote about. 
This is calling for more than simply saying thank you to God before our meals or even thanking God for the turkey dinner or even thanking God after we've received some special blessing in answer to a prayer that we've offered to God. It's good that we do that. But this is about worshiping God for who he is in a way that is thankful for him. So our time in the word will encourage grateful worship for God from his people. So please join me in Psalm 138, a very short psalm believed to be written by David. I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word according to all your name. And the day I called, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth. And they will sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the work of your hands. The first thing that we observe from this hymn is that it shows us a worshiper who is expressing his will to praise the Lord God. And I want to emphasize the will of the worshiper here, especially in these first three verses. And we're going to spend a little bit more time in those first three verses because it's really where I want to land with our thoughts this morning. And we'll move a little bit more quickly through the second half of this hymn. But I want us to note, first of all, the will of the worshiper, how it is bent toward the will of God. Now, most agree that David is likely the author of this hymn, though we're not certain of that, and we're not certain that if David is the writer, what period of his life this may be have penned by him. It appears that it may have been during his kingdom years, and certainly during a time of trouble and conflict with enemies, as verse 7 suggests. However, there is hardly a time in David's life when he didn't experience trials and pressure from his enemies. So that detail is not necessarily helpful. But the character of this hymn is certainly familiar worship for David as we see in his other writings. This sounds like David. It sounds like David's experiences. And if he is the author, then he is a very credible example to us of a man that knows how to worship God, how to worship God through the circumstances of life and what it means to appreciate God for who he is. David was a very theological man, a man after God's heart. He had a passion for God. And in the first three verses, you see the expressiveness of the worshiper here, or the will to worship being so visible. Notice again the language, I will give you thanks. I will sing praises to you. I will bow down toward your temple. I will give thanks to your name. I called on you, and you answered me. This is an expressiveness of a heart of a man that is, his will has been given over to the will of God. And what these verses show us that is, is that expressing thankfulness to the Lord that is truly worshipful will mean that it has to be personal for each one of us. Emphasize that. It will be personal for each one of us before we gather in corporate praise or before we can even consider this to be corporate praise. The heart of the individual has to be surrendered in its will or his will over to the will of God for it to be worship. And once it's individual worship as we gather together, then it becomes corporate worship. Notice verse 1, the wholeheartedness of praise here. The wholeheartedness of praise. The gratitude or thankfulness of the worshiper is with all my heart. This expression of the will is seen in other psalms, especially those written by David, which gives credibility to him likely being the author. And we see that same expression, I will give thanks to you, I will praise you, I will worship you with all my heart in, in Psalm 9, in Psalm 16, in Psalm 86, just to name a few. But what stands out in this is the heart of worship that is full of thankfulness for God to give thanks. 
Thanks to God with all our hearts describes sincerity. It describes passion. It describes devotion. A commitment to bend my will to God's will. Saying thank you to God must be more than just being polite to him. And for this Old Testament worshiper, singing praises to God, emphasis on song, music, singing praises to God was one way in which he expressed this wholehearted gratitude. And because David was the musician of the Old Testament, he was the singer of the Psalms. It is likely the expression of David's heart that we're reading here. He was thankful for all of, with all of his heart. And what prompted him to sing was that heart of thankfulness to God. In the context of the Psalms, singing involved the voice <clears throat> and a variety of instruments. The songs of praise were well thought out, theologically, doctrinally, and they were put into some kind of music, musical rhythm that elevated the heart and the emotions to think highly of God, to think highly of the Lord. And I think we understand this even as we sing together. And I was noticing how the volume of the church sang just moments ago when you were considering the glory and the majesty of God, especially around the cross, the empty tomb, and what is in store for the believer because of that. Music has a way of raising our enthusiasm. It heightens our emotions. It stirs our gratitude to the Lord. Musical praise has a way of elevating our thoughts and our feelings of God's glory. It adds joy or majesty to our thoughts and words. Now, we're not sure how singing would have sounded back in that Hebrew time period or that Hebrew context. But the Psalms themselves, even though they don't identify kind of a melody, it speaks to us of rejoicing in song, exalting God, lifting high or that God is highly to be praised in music. There is extolling and blessing his name. These are words that we see in the Psalms. Singing praise is, is said to be pleasant and stirring gladness within the heart. These are expressions that are, are, that are filled in the Psalms. Even in the Psalms that are expressing hardship and discouragement, somewhere in the course of that hymn or that psalm, it will be raised to praising God in the midst of times of darkness and grief. Singing praise to God is and was a way to magnify the glory of the Lord and it lifts the heart of worshiper to a full capacity of gratitude or thanksgiving to God. And the end of verse 1 reads, I will sing praises to you before the gods. The Hebrew word for gods is Elohim. And it is used very often in scripture to speak of the Lord God. But in the Old Testament, Elohim is also used to speak of the false gods, idols, of kings sometimes, of judges, of magistrates, and other people of nobility. So there are differing opinions as to what the psalmist means there in verse 1. Some have even speculated that the ark of God may be implied. But many believe that this song of praise is being offered to the one true God into the midst of, or in the midst of the nations who bowed down to lifeless gods made of wood and stone and metal or, or false gods. And that would seem to fit the context here. But I want to bring up on the screen a quote by William Plummer who makes a valid point here out of his old 1800s commentary on the book of Psalms. He says there is no valid objections to adopting all of those opinions in the presence of of the searcher of hearts, or God, the searcher of hearts, before the ark, the symbol of his presence, before the magistrates, before the gods worshipped by the Gentiles, before angels, before all dignitaries, earthly and heavenly, I will sing psalms to Jehovah. The point the plumber is making is that combining all of the possibilities of interpretation there, God's supremacy, his worship is above all others. And that's what the psalmist is trying to communicate to us. That when we look at any other dignity or power, or authority, or noble person, or even the false gods that men will bow down and worship, stands the supremacy and the majesty of God. And the worshiper is saying, I will, I will worship God above all those others. Because he alone is worthy of worship. He alone is God. 
No one, even those of high positions, can compare to the believer's thankfulness to God for being God. None can be worshipped but God alone. And because of God's majesty and greatness, we, like this psalmist, are going to have no inhibitions about singing his praises before them all. We will stand before them all and praise the God who is true, extolling his supremacy above all others. So as worshipers, our wills are surrendered over to the greater will of the Lord God. And then in verse 2, David, or the author here, brings out the reverence in his gratitude. In verse 2, he bows himself toward the temple to give thanks for who God is, to praise God. Now, the holy temple in David's day would have been the tabernacle. It was only his son later that built the structure known as the, the temple. But whether we're envisioning the tabernacle, the tent, or the temple later, this symbolized the place where God would dwell. So what David is communicating when he says, I bow down toward, as if facing there, he's saying, I'm directing my worship to where God dwells. I'm giving this to him. I'm offering this to him. And the bowing toward where God dwells was an act of reverence or adoration and praise that is meant to be given to God and received by God. And when the psalm writers bowed down or worshiped toward where God is present, it was not to indicate worship that is man-focused or man-pleasing, unlike much of what is called worship today. This is worship that was meant to be given and received by God. And he's bowing down in humble reverence, saying, I will submit to what pleases you, and I offer this to you and to you alone. This is not man-centered worship. This is not man-pleasing worship. There are no light shows. There's no productions on the stages. No smoking machines. This is a worshiper that is facing the presence of God, and he's saying, I'm offering to you what you delight in, what pleases you. Bowing toward the presence of God is giving him worship as he desires and in a way that he has instructed his people to approach him. Both the posture of bowing and the direction that would face toward God are both symbolic of worship that is God-focused, God-centered, and God-directed. Bowing represents humility in the worshiper, in the presence of one who is far greater. Humility is essential in true worship, as will be evident later in this psalm, as we'll see in just a moment. But the one who will give thanks to God with all their heart will reflect this humility in outward expressions and words that show honor to God's majesty and over man's preferences. We are not here to please the world around us or the community around us. We're not even here to please ourselves. We are here to worship and please the God that we surrender our wills to. What is going to honor Him in our music? Music should sound good to us. It should arouse our hearts, arouse our emotions. But those emotions, those pleasures that we have must be surrendered to the will of God. What delights him? What pleases him? How are we going to know what pleases him unless he tells us? Is then our songs of worship, our adoration of him directed by him? And this means submitting our will to his and keeping the focus of attention on his nature, on his character, his attributes. As was true of this Old Testament worshiper, God's people today will give thanks to him because he is a God of love and truth, as verse 2 goes on to show. His loving character is what has compelled God to provide what we need in life and for eternity. And if we do not get what we hope for in this life, it's because God says you don't need it. I haven't given it to you because you don't need it. And therefore, we worship God in his truth as much as we do in his love. Out of his love for us, he's going to give us what we need, and he will deny us what we don't need. Because he is a God of truth, he will sovereignly act on our behalf according to what is true. And we can trust God because there is no deception. There's no falsehood with him. 
And this is further explained in verse 2 as it continues. I will give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and for your truth. For you have magnified your word according to your truth. The Bible is magnified or made magnificent because it proclaims what is true about God and his character. That's what the psalmist is saying. The word of God is lifted in its magnificence because it tells us the truth about God. It reveals God to us. The worshiper is thankful for who God is. The worshiper is also grateful to God for his blessings and what God does for his people. And we see this in this hymn as well. But essential to our gratitude must be that we see the great value and glory of God's character and his attributes. God loves his people and he will always do good because he is faithful. He's a God of truth, faithful to himself, faithful to care for us according to who he is as a God of love. The very fact that we can trust God or trust our lives to God's hands is that he is always true to his own character. He is always good. He's always gracious. He is always full of mercy. His covenant love for us means that he will always act on our behalf according to who he is. For the psalmist in particular, God's love, his faithfulness, those are significant qualities to be thankful for because trouble was present. Enemies were afoot. They were hostile to him in some threatening way. How did this worshiper come to know of the richness of the glory of God? What brought him to this place of knowing God that with all of his heart, he was thankful? What brought him here? Well, the thankfulness of this psalmist came from his study of God's word. He knew the word of God. And the magnificence of the word of God is that it told him, the worshiper, this is who I am. This is who God is. It's the word that he learned of God. He came to know God. He grew to trust God more fully because he'd immersed himself in this magnificent word. All of, the hu all of humanity has a measure of the knowledge of God in their hearts, as Paul wrote in Romans 1. And as we look around at creation, we see a measure of God's power and his glory. But it is only from God's word does he reveal the intimate truths of his divine nature and personality. Only in his word do we see the expressions of his grace, his mercy, and even his sovereignty. It is only in his word do we see the glory of his love for sinners as the story of the cross unfolds both in Old and New Testament. And the last expression in verse 2 is difficult to interpret, as we can see from the differing translations. But I think the general idea is clear enough. The word of God is magnified because it communicates the truth about God's majesty, his holiness, and the glory of his perfections to us. It's not that the word of God is greater than God's glory, as if it's supposed to be something we worship, but the magnificence of the word. The magnitude of the word is that it tells us about the excellency of God himself. And this kind of thankfulness that comes from the study of God's word, who God is, only comes as we learn from him in his word. The heart that is fully grateful for God has spent time in his word and has seen the truth of God magnified as we learn of him. So essential to being grateful to God is knowing him more fully as God has declared himself to be and then bending our will to conform to him, to conform to his pleasure and purposes. And this brings, brings us to the third verse where we see petitions or conversations with God bring the blessing of God into our life. What the worshiper has stated in verse 1 and 2 is gratitude, is praise for God, because he's come to know God, brings this worshiper to his knees. It compels the psalmist to come to God, knowing God's character, his love, his faithfulness, and he pours out his needs, his petitions to the Lord. He simply bows his head before the Lord God and has a conversation in prayer. The psalmist clearly felt weak. He was drained of vitality, likely because of the troubles and the opposition that he faced in life. And he had grown weary. 
Having come to know who God is, the worshiper appeals to God for his love and his sovereign care. God is faithful to his people. So the author here, David, calls upon the Lord for help. And notice the psalmist is not disappointed because God answered him. He was strengthened in spirit, given a fresh boldness in the face of adversity. Why? Because God was with him. God could, took care of him. The believer came to know that his life with all of its circumstances was firmly held by the God that can be trusted because God is faithful. God is true. God will always respond to us out of his loving kindness. It's who he is. And this is what comes of the man or the woman that has spent time in the word, not simply for academic growth, not simply to read our scheduled devotion for the morning, but to grow in our understanding of who God is. The word teaches us that God knows what we need. He's also a God that knows what we don't need. He knows when to remove our trouble, and he knows when best to let our trouble remain and to supply us instead with boldness and strength in the face of life's difficulties. That's what the psalmist is saying here. God did not take his trouble away, notice. He gave him strength to endure that trouble. The first three verses are so important to our prayers in times of desperate need. Because very often when hard times come against us as believers, we become discouraged, we become fearful, we become anxious, we become overwhelmed at times, and very times those emotional stresses put physical demands on us. And I would argue that many of our physical infirmities come from a lack of understanding God. And the troubles of life tear us down emotionally. And we've all been there. And if we're not attentive to our daily spiritual health needs when trouble comes, we can easily fall into despair. And almost certainly, this is the pattern that follows when we're in that position. We pull away from prayer. We pull away from our time in the Word. And we pull away from the church, which Christ has given to believers to strengthen and encourage our walk of faith. These are graces that God gives to us. Prayer, the study of His Word. And what we learn from that word and the communion that we have together in fellowship as believers. This psalm does not teach us that God will take our troubles away all the time. Rather, it teaches us that God will provide the strength, the endurance, and the trust in him that will make us bold and spiritually durable for life's trials. The writer of this psalm, I want you to notice, had a heart that was filled with thanksgiving for who God is. He was already prepared in his heart to meet the trials of life. He didn't wait till the trouble came to try to shore up his spiritual deficiencies. He was walking daily in thanksgiving to the Lord, knowing who God was, feasting on the word, and learning the character, the attributes of God. He knew God. And so when he faced trials, and the weakness and the infirmities came, he knew where to go. He knew what to do. He would bow before this God that he knew that he was thankful for, this God that he praised, this God that he rejoiced in, this God that he had been learning of from the magnificence of God's word. He knelt in prayer knowing that this is a God that will take care of me. And this God did not take away the trouble. He did not take away the enemies but he made his heart strong and bold. Spiritually, this man was strengthened. He came to this understanding through the illumination of God's word, which is according to all of God's name. What is evidenced here in this psalm is that the writer did more than simply read the word. He did more than just cover the daily devotion for the morning. He studied, he learned, he meditated, he applied such that the result was worship a heart that was full of thanksgiving and praise. Just think back to a time when you really faltered in your walk of faith. Most likely, if you're like me, you pulled away from the spiritual graces, and we can tend to wallow in self-pity. Anxiety, fear, depression, discouragement will follow. If this is David, then he witnessed the richness of God's character 
through the blessings, the protections, the spiritual nourishment that he'd received from the Lord. This is a man that walked in his history with God. He could give testimony to who God is by his own experiences. And when troubles weighed down on him, as it will with all believers, he turned to pray to the God that he trusted in, the God he was thankful for, because he knew God as God. But notice this rich understanding of God did not keep David from spiritually faltering or being weakened inwardly. As is true of all of us, trouble has a way of exposing our weaknesses and our need for what God supplies. David's knowledge of God is what gave him confidence to call upon the Lord God. When trouble came and his soul felt weakened, his heart was already prepared in praise and worship. He was already strengthened to deal with this weakness. And the answer that the Lord brought to this worship was not to remove David's troubles or take his enemies out of his life. But God answered out of love for one of his sheep. He loved this writer. And out of his loving kindness, he strengthened the inner man with a boldness to face the hardships. Because in truth, is that not what we all really need? It's not going to be helpful to take all of our troubles away. What we need is to be strengthened in the inner man or the inner woman. If the Lord simply cleared away all the troubles in life, we would never look to him who alone can direct the affairs of the universe. He can direct the affairs of our life. We would never increase in our trust of him. We would never grow spiritually stronger in our walk of faith. Remove all trouble and we're going to think ourselves self-sufficient and having little need of divine help. Gratitude for God and who God is will come from him in a time of need for what he alone can provide. Being grateful to God is that disposition that we need to grow in so that when trouble comes, we're strengthened and prepared and we know where to go. We fall on our knees before the Lord and we trust him to give us what we need and to not give us what we don't need. This moves the worshiper in verse 4, 5, and 6 to consider the glory of God's salvation or what I refer to here as the expansion of worship. David appears to assume the role of a prophet in these verses as we see in other psalms. And we might even see that, say that there's a hint of messianic prophecy here. At the time of this hymn's writing, few if any of the kings on the earth that surrounded David's kingdom were worshipers of God. Israel was surrounded by pagan, idolatrous nations, and the very reason that Israel was instructed by God to stay away from those pagans was so that they didn't end up worshiping those false gods and walking in the the sins of those pagans. But here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David, or the author here, envisions the day when God's voice will be heard by other leaders and noblemen and kings and women of, of position who will respond to God with thankfulness and songs of praise as David is doing here, as David did, or as this author did. This is not at all what David witnessed in his day. So there are two explanations that possibly we can give here. One of them is the passion of David's heart for the Lord. When he heard the voice of God, he was aroused to praise and love and adoration and thanksgiving to God. He was so excited about God himself. He knew God so well that he said, if the other people heard the voice of God, surely they would see his glory and majesty as well. Partly this could be his enthusiasm for God himself. But the other and more likely explanation, or the additional explanation perhaps, is the reflection here of David's vision of what is yet to come. That God had given him a vision of what is to come in gospel times, where God's name would be made known, the glory of God would be made known, the salvation of God would be proclaimed, the Son of God would be proclaimed. The word that is used in verse 4, when they 
have heard. That's two words in our English, but the word in Greek, have heard, is used in a way that suggests hearing with an obedient response. In fact, many other times in the Old Testament, when this same word is used, it is interpreted as obey or obedience. And if this is how we're to understand verse 4, then David is describing the day when the word of God is proclaimed and those hearing respond in obedient faith. This is an obedient hearing. One author writes, the verse contains a prediction of the widespread and hearty embracing of the truth of the gospel. We know from Paul's writing to the church in Philippi that the day will come when all men, all beings, in heaven and earth and below, will bow down before the Son of God. And it says, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The day will come when every tongue will confess. Philippians 2.11. And this is further supported by verse 6 in Psalm 138, which begins with the word for. In other words, David is about to explain what he's just said in verse 4 and 5. Verse 6, he's about to explain. And this is a marvelous characterization of what he's just said about what he envisions is coming. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly. But the haughty, he knows from afar. That's a marvelous characterization of the gospel-saving God of heaven. When will the kings and the nobles of earth hear God's voice and respond in grateful worship and songs of praise. When is that going to happen? When God sends his son and proclaims his gospel salvation through the cross. And this is how the psalmist explains this in verse 6. Though God is highly exalted, yet for our sake, he condescended in taking on human flesh, becoming one of us, living among us so that he could carry our sins upon himself and receive our judgment for our sins, even dying on a cross to make full payment for them. It is the cross that demonstrates so clearly what the psalmist is describing God to be here. Even though God is exalted above all others, those who are humbled before him through faith, he regards in a saving way. But those who remain lofty in their own eyes, we could say those who believe that they can earn God's favor or get to heaven or paradise or eternity on their own terms, God will hold them afar. He knows who they are, but fellowship with them is not permitted. And eternity is not permitted either. God knows them afar means that God knows about them. He knows who they are. He knows the sin of their heart but he does not join himself with them in fellowship or in eternal glory. Those whom God is pleased to rescue will be drawn by him into saving faith. By faith, sinners called by him will see themselves in their lowly or their depraved condition and their cry out for saving mercy. Their hearts will be awakened to the truth of God's judgment against sin. And they're going to see the provision of redemption in God's Son who gave himself up on a cross as an atoning sacrifice for his people. They will trust in him as their Lord and Savior. These are those who hear with obedient ears the gospel words of God. So this is a description of what we read. Verse 6 is a description of what we read in verse 4 and 5. Those who will give thanks to him and sing of his ways are those who will come to know him in a saving way. This will include kings and rulers, presidents and governors, noblemen and women, and all kinds that come as humble sinners before the Lord. These are the lowly ones that God will have regard for in drawing them to his son. And they respond in obedient faith because their hearts have been awakened by the Lord God to see the glory of his salvation. And this brings us to verse 7 and 8, where the worshiper now expresses a confidence in God, in his worship, a confidence in worship. And you can kind of see the progression here. Where first three verses, the worshiper is given to know who God is. And in that knowledge of God comes forth this gratitude of heart for who God is, in his character, his attributes. He trusts God in prayer. He envisions the day when more will come to God and see God in this way. 
But he ends on such a confident note here in verse 7 and 8. Notice the language. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies. And your right hand will save me. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the work of your hands. This is not a man that is presuming his own will upon the Lord's. This is a man that knows God. He knows who God is. He knows the character of God. Has absolute confidence in who God is and what God will do for his people. And again, if this is David writing, his experience in life, he'd, he'd endured a lot of trials, faced a lot of fearful circumstances, faced many, many enemies. And he could easily look back and see that God did not immediately remove all of his troubles from before him. But in God's time and in God's way, God faithfully ruled over David's days on earth. David did give testimony to that. He'd seen God work. And so he can come to verse 7 and say, God will do this. He will do it in his time and his way, but God will act. And because David had come to know God in his glory and in majesty through his walk of faith, he had learned who God is through the magnified word that testified to all that God is. So David could confidently say, God will revive me in his time. He will subdue my enemies as it pleases him to do. And his right hand will save me, if not in this life, certainly in the life to come. Where does that confidence come from? It comes from a heart that is wholly thankful for who God is. That's the point of this hymn. It's a heart that is thankful for who God is. That's where this confidence in life comes from. And if you're struggling with your circumstances in life, you just can't figure it out, this would be an answer for you. It's to know this God in such a way that every moment of every day you are thankful with all your heart for God, for who he is. Even when times are tough and miserable, I know God for who he is. And that's why I say this is a hymn that I needed. Not only in my walk of faith, but in the present. We all face hard times. We all face enemies and difficult people. But what gives me confidence? I know God. And I'm thankful for what he's done for me, to be sure. But I'm thankful for who he is. The psalmist then follows in verse 8, combining both his experience and his theology. Experience and theology. What God will accomplish is what he intends to do for each one of his people. And I think the ESV version explains this well. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. This is something each one of us should say in our hearts right now. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Paul says exactly the same thing in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. You know this verse well. But in speaking of the salvation of our God for us, Paul says, I am what? Confident of this very thing that the God who began a good work in me will what? Complete it, perfect it in the day of Christ Jesus. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. And this is what I believe is the result of a believer who is thankful to God with all their heart, thankful for being God, for being who he is. Thankful to God for being God. And when we praise him as God and that his loving kindness is everlasting, we will be confident that he will fulfill his purpose in our lives. We may not know when, we will not know how all the time, and we may not always see him act, but we will be confident that he will be God, faithful, loving, trustworthy, always the God of truth. Confident because out of his love for us, his work is a good work. And he's taking that good work to a place of perfection. This truly takes the fear the despondency, the anxiety, and the worry out of the troubling circumstances of life. God will fix me in the end. 
And this last line, notice, verse 8, is not a breaking of confidence in God, but rather David is saying, what you have promised to do, what you have been doing, keep on doing it. Don't stop. What your hands have started in me, continue until your work is complete and until, God, you are satisfied with me. Keep doing it, God. What this Old Testament hymn teaches us is that thankfulness is not merely being polite or using the words thank you in our prayer time to the Lord. Thankfulness, and I hope we get this by now, thankfulness is a condition of the heart that sees God for who he is. It's a condition of the heart that sees God for who he is. And through the knowledge of his magnified word, the character and attributes of God are made known to the believer in a way that is far, far more than academic. It's a heart that is full of thankfulness for who God is, a heart that will sing his praises. <clears throat> and this cultivates grateful worship, which transforms our outlook on life. It drives us to communicate with the Lord God through prayer, knowing that he will answer according to his loving kindness, according to his truth. It fills us with a confident expectation of his work in our lives, that he will bring this work in my life. This is a good work, and he will bring it to perfection. He's going to finish what he started. So we say, like the psalmist, Lord, keep doing it until you're satisfied with me, until I'm ready for glory. So I say, or I ask, are you thankful this morning for God? For who he is as God. Like many of you, I've come to love and approve of the memorials that we have set up to praise God for his work and his blessings to us, his character. We've not been instructed by God's word to celebrate Thanksgiving or Christmas or Resurrection Sunday, but we have memorial services that people that we love and that loved us die, and we put on a memorial service to recognize what they've done in our lives and how they've been a blessing to us. How much more should we think of these kind of special holidays that give honor to the richness of God's love for us? Thanksgiving is a memorial to Christ. Christmas is a memorial to the sacrifice. And certainly Resurrection Sunday, is it not a tribute to God's love for sinners and the victory that we have in Christ? Thanksgiving is a memorial to God for his provisions but it is also a memorial to the believer's gratitude for who God is. We can be thankful for God's blessings, but we must, and this is essential, we must be thankful for who God is. Psalm 138 shows us this heart of thankfulness as an essential disposition of our worship, just seeing the worth, the worthiness of God. And in considering our thankfulness in worship from this passage, we could rightly ask of ourselves, how well do I know my God this morning? How well do I know him? So some things that we can be thankful for just in closing. And this is just maybe a sampling from this psalm. We can be thankful first for God directing my heart to him. I can be thankful to God for directing my heart to him. And again, for our corporate worship as we gather every Sunday, for this worship to be genuine, our individual worship must also be genuine. The only thing that makes this gathering together a true worship of God is if my individual heart is prepared to worship. Do I personally have a heart of gratitude as I gather with you saints Sunday morning? Do I come together in worship thankful to God with all of my heart? It's God that teaches us this through his word. We can be thankful for God directing my heart to him to see him for who he is. Second, we can be thankful for God's teaching me or teaching of his pleasure and his purposes. What pleases God? What's his purpose? Why did he save me? We can be thankful for God's teaching of his pleasure and purposes. Bowing in worship to his, toward his presence means that I'm seeking what pleases God. I'm seeking his purposes in a way that he's instructed. So both in our private and our corporate worship, who do I come to please? Who am I come, coming to reverence or to give honor to? This is a submitting of my will 
to the will of God. And third, as we consider thankfulness for who God is, we're thankful for God revealing himself through his word. Are you not thankful that God has revealed to you who he is through his written word? This hymn writer, this, this, this praise song of David, if we will, was written to honor the word of God because he learned God through that word. Are we thankful for God revealing himself through his word? Thankfulness comes not just from receiving blessings from God's hands, but also from learning truth from his word. And therefore, the measure of my gratitude and worship of God will be determined how well I know God. God has given us a resource for that. We have that treasure in our laps right now. God is telling us, this is who I am. Learn of me. Fourth, we ought to be thankful for who God is to me. Emphasize to me personally. Thankful for God, who God is to me. Communicating our thankfulness and praises to God is a song for the world, I think, to see in us also. What then is God to me? As the world looks at me, what is God to me? Like the world of unbelievers, we face hardships, disappointments, we face enemies. But is my knowledge of God and his faithful care for me reflected in my worship or in my worry? What does the world see in me as a worshiper of God? They see Mr. Worrywart or the worshiper of the God that I know? Does the world see gloom and darkness in the church or the joy that we have of being under the care of the good shepherd? Do the unsaved around us see in us those who see the greatness of God's glory? This is a reflection of our thankfulness for who God is. Fifth, be thankful for God's faithful provisions. And this is most obvious at Thanksgiving. We can be thankful for God's faithful provisions. Thankfulness for God will cause us to have a greater dependency on him causing us to call upon him all the more. If we are truly thankful for God's provisions, we're going to be the most praying people on the planet. Does my prayer of life reflect this? Sixth, <clears throat> we can be thankful now for what God is yet to do. And we saw that in this hymn, verse 4, 5, and 6. Thankful now for what God is yet to do. Understanding the gospel should give us a far greater hope in the future than does the increasing darkness bring us into gloom. Debbie and I were sharing with somebody we were counseling with just this week, and we were reminded of my dad, who is a very patriotic and a very conservative man. And he would listen a lot to Fox News or watch Fox News a lot, listen to conservative talk radio. But as he got older and his mind started to slip, Saturating his mind on that brought him into a darkness. So we had to turn the TV off and give him other things to listen to, like gospel music, which he also loved. We can look around at our world, and we know morally we're in trouble. This is a dark pit that our nation is heading into. And we can either follow into that gloom, or we can rejoice at what, we are, what is yet to come for us. And I think this is what the psalmist is doing in verse 4, 5, and 6. Thankful now for what is yet to come. This world is coming to ruin. It's coming to judgment. But where are we going? What's in store for us? What has God prepared for us? There's a feast being prepared in the marriage of his church to Christ himself. And we're part of that. And we'll be there for all of eternity the atonement of Christ, the redeemed of God, will forever be gathered in glory, singing the praises of God. We'll be there singing too. And again, this should be our story. I understand the darkness around us, but it can pull us either into gloom or it can keep our eyes fixed on what is yet to come, the glory of redemption. And seventh, how we are to be thankful for how, and I'm emphasizing how, God is perfecting me. The how is sometimes difficult, sometimes painful, sometimes fearful. 
but am I thankful for how God is perfecting me? No matter the trial or the opposition that we find ourselves in today, God will complete the purpose for which we have been saved, for which you have been saved. He did not save us to bring us to ruin. He saved us to bring us to glory. Do we understand that? Do we walk in that truth? He did not save us to bring us to ruin. He saved us to bring us to his glory. And the source of our thankfulness is this. What God has purposed to do, God will do. And so we should respond as this writer did, as he concludes, therefore, God, keep doing what you're doing to me. Keep taking me to this place of perfection and keep doing it until you're satisfied with me. Father in heaven, as we close this time of worship, I recognize the power and the glory of just a simple hymn like this and what it means to us as your people, a people that have received glory from you, eternal life, fellowship with you, cleansing, forgiveness, and we've received coming under the work of your great shepherding hand. The work that you do on our lives is a good work. And you're going to bring that work to completion. Let us rejoice in that, Father. I pray that you would fill our hearts with a great and a holy gratitude for who you are. Let us sing your praises because of who you are. Let us bow before you in prayer because of who you are. We look around at the world, we see the turmoil, but we see the gospel as well that takes unsaved people to know you as you are. And Father, our knowledge, our gratitude, our praise of you brings us to a place where we can be confident in you because of who you are. Would you make us this kind of worshiper this morning? We pray this together in Christ's name. Amen.